Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a solutions-oriented podcast and live radio show. Each month, we dedicate just about 30 minutes to uh, inform our leaders and, and professionals about topics of interest. And this is your host, Brian Perkins. Uh, waiting, we've had a little bit of technical difficulty today, uh, but um, we will have that uh, shortly. Um, and we'll be back with you in just a moment. Well, welcome to the Perkins platform. We finally uh, resolved our technical in, uh, difficulties. And so now I'm looking here at the switchboard. I'm getting uh, my callers in um, and our, our, our guests. I uh, want to welcome everyone. Uh, thank you for your patience in uh, being uh, here for uh, today. We had uh, difficulty. No one was showing up on the switchboard. So uh, I want to welcome all of you. Uh, we have a great show. And so those of you who have tuned in and held on for a few minutes, thank you. Uh, we have uh, with us uh, today uh, leaders from all over the country. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking. Um, the the introduction of them is on, on the show. But we have uh, individuals that are coming from as far and wide as um, – um, Washington State and and Chicago, Atlanta, Jackson, Mississippi, and so welcome to all my guests. Um, I today we're here to talk about um, what's actually happening in schools. There's a lot of talk um, all over around um, the difficulties that children are having. Uh, some of you may have listened in and heard earlier during the pandemic where a host of uh, leaders and professionals, particularly mental health professionals, talked about um, what was what to expect and what was happening with children. Um, but I'm hearing a lot of different stories. And so today's guests should be able to enlighten us in terms of what's happening in schools. And so I know I have at least a couple of people who are um, actually schooled in schools. I have Two others that are um, are district level leaders and organizational leaders, but I want to start with my principals first. Um, I know I have uh, Kevin Parkinson, who is uh, the principal of Midtown Public Charter School in Jackson, Mississippi, and I have Melissa Swayze, um, who is a principal of uh, Esmeralda Santiago School in Chicago. And I want to hear first from my principals uh, to uh, share with us. Uh, just a little bit about um, what's the biggest challenge you face right now um, with your students in the schools um, coming back uh, full-fledged 
during this pandemic? What what are you what are you most challenged by? We can start with Melissa. You want you want to start first? Sure. Thanks. Thanks, Dr. Perkins. Um, you know, there there are definitely a few things popping up. I I, just, I do just want to lead with um, how wonderful it is for us to have the children back in the building, and how how much I really think kids love being in school. Um, I think they're, they're kind of over the moon about being back in the building and making those social connections and getting those supports that were really difficult, if not impossible, for us to provide um, during, during remote learning. Um, I, I do think, you know, one thing that we're certainly seeing more of with our kids, and, and I run a, I'm a principal of a K-8 school in Chicago, so, I, you know, it runs the gamut there. I've got five to, to 14, 14-year-olds in the building. And I, I do think one thing that they're struggling with is, is kind of just reacclimating to um, engaging in, in such a social space that, that school is. Um, and I think if I had to really drill down, I think the, um, the, the regulation of emotions, regulating them properly, is probably one of our greatest growth areas in the school, and that does run um, K-8. And I could certainly talk in more detail, but I I know our other um, Mm -hmm. principal on the call might have a similar perspective or something different. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. That's helpful. Kevin? Yeah. Yeah. Hey. Good evening, everybody. And um, and and how fitting that a call on the uh, disruptions caused by COVID would would begin with <laughs> technical difficulties. So I think it's very fitting. Um, yeah, it's part of the deal. Um, listen, I'm not sure if there's anything really novel that I can say, but just to reiterate the scale of what we're dealing with, um, I would say we took a generational step back in the progress we've made towards educational equity and educational um, excellence. Um, I mean, it's, it's, there, there, are, there are bright spots. There are things that we could take from this experience that have, you know, maybe been for the better. There are, uh, you know, there's, there's all of those things. But, but make no mistake, um, COVID was really bad in, in just about every conceivable way. And, and, you know, we've mitigated that to the best of our ability. We're, we're trying to take advantage of, of such an opportunity. I think, you know, we've all become more familiar with technology and, you know, there's, there's more attention paid to schools. So I, I think there's some good from it. But, but on just about every aspect from, um, you know, we, we've seen a hit on attendance, which is understandable when families are still trying to get their own lives together and, you know, make those things happen. It's, it's harder to, to get kids to school sometimes. Um, as excited as they are to come, there's just, there's just challenges from that. And, and so there's, we've seen hits from everything from um, attendance to the social emotional regulation skills that, that others have shared. Um, and then certainly the academics and, and, you know, that's not the end all be all. And I, and I understand as, 
as people who care about the whole child, you know, you know, there's a lot of talk before, you know, of Bloom before Maslow and or Maslow before Bloom and, you know, all this other stuff. And it's, you know, academics are not the end all be all, but academics are important. And the, the gap that we saw, um, you know, our, our incoming students are even further behind um, than they have. Um, we're, 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 we're working really, really hard to reestablish um, relationships with parents. And at our school, that was always the easiest part. I mean, we've always had really strong relationships with parents, um, but we've just been physically separated for a year and a half. And so even something that was so foundational to our culture and so foundational to our bones um, is something that everyone is just working on, not to mention the fact that staff are overwhelmed and staff are feeling like they're picking up a thousand different things and, and, and going at it. And, and, and so staff is, is being burnt out and we're thinking about staffing and, and how to keep staff morale as high as we can. Um, so, you know, there's certainly good things that came from it and, and we're going to mitigate the losses all we can, but make no mistake about it. Everybody should be paying really, really close attention to what's happening in K-12 schools right now, because it, it did, it, it cannot be overstated. Um, some of the detrimental effects that, that COVID has created. Sure. Sure. And question is really for anybody um, you know I've heard a lot of people say that kids are farther behind so what does that mean exactly um, I, you know in one sense I know that you know a kid that might have been I, I just heard last night uh, a woman say that um, her kid was supposed to start school uh, you know kindergarten at in 2020 in in September of 2020, and of course that didn't happen until just now. Um, so now September 2020, and then it, it they really didn't come in full swing in September 2021. Um, it was you know kind of phased in, and then a lot of start and stop. Um, and so that was difficult. And so kids didn't know um, how to behave in school. So I know I'm hearing a lot about uh, from from leaders in schools and even parents about kids just struggling to be oriented to school. But in what ways might you quantify that they are behind? Um, and and I'm, I'm going to just ask before we talk about academics, I think we get that piece. Um, for the most part, I mean, we're going to come back to it. But what what are some of the other ways in which they are behind? And that's for anyone. Well, this is Heather, and I'm calling from Seattle, um, Executive Director of Education for Technology Access Foundation. And I think that some of the indicators that they are behind is just the um, – well, first I want to say – that over the course of this year, we work in seven different schools and we've seen a tremendous increase in um, student engagement over the course of the year from the beginning of the year. And a lot of that had to do with students' ability to be reminded of what um, engaging in the learning process looks like. Since so many people were relegated to computers, 
the ability to be um, engaged in an ongoing way. Usually the classes were a little bit shorter. Um, the, the manner in which, you know, they might not have even had to have their cameras on. And so when you re-enter an environment where you haven't had to actually engage with another human being closely, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's the nervousness around that. Um, and we talk about the danger of COVID. So should I be close to you? Should I be farther away from the adults to the children? So I think the emotional weight that had to exist um, with just basic interaction, and then also endurance. You know, we went from a time where students were used to being in a school building for five, six, seven, some schools, eight hours a day, and now they they were thrust into an environment where they were at home and only online for maybe 30 minutes at a time, and they got a 15-minute break, and then they came back. And so they didn't have the physical endurance, let alone the mental focus endurance to be able to engage and then coupled that with the fear um, and the inconsistent um, instruction based on people being sick so they're in or they're out teachers being in and out I think all of that just had an extreme emotional and physical um, toll on students within the school at every level and so that's outside Mm -hmm. of academics so I think getting that and reconditioning ourselves to be in a learning space first and foremost, like had to happen before any academics could be attended to. Sure, sure. Thank you, Heather. I know, um, Keisha, you are um, responsible for a few schools, in fact, um, so not just one set of one, one set of faculty at a school. Um, you you know you have your eye across the board. How is this impacting um, your ability um, to have teachers show up? I mean, I know Heather just mentioned you know, and and actually Kevin did too about um, it impacting teachers. How how has that impacted you and changed your work um, dealing with um, kind of teachers te- uh, recruiting teachers and retaining teachers? Yes. Um, Dr. Perkins, and uh, just really want to second everything that has been shared um, here in Atlanta. I think we're also noticing that this is like a national trend. It's not something that we're dealing with here. Um, But in terms of like teacher uh, retention um, and just the sustainability of being back into the classroom, that has definitely been a challenge that we've been facing. Specifically, uh, something we've been exploring most recently is the great resignation and the impact that it is having in education and how more and more um, team members are actually uh, deciding, making the decision if they want to continue in education because of some of the challenges that we're facing. So we are actively working, um, and, and Kevin mentioned this, to just like, help to make the work feel more sustainable. We're literally in the process of evaluating our schedules to ensure we have adequate planning time, not just for teachers to feel prepared for their lessons, but so that they can feel sustained and, like, eat lunch or, you know, step away and go to the post office because sometimes in education um, these small things are, are hard to tackle. Um, and we did have a lot of flexibility um, when we were teaching virtually. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, 
Heather said something that was really interesting in terms of, like, the scholar perspective and something that I wrote down with instability. And that was uh, something that came up a lot um, for, for students. They have also felt this um, fear of instability because, um, and Melissa said it earlier, our kids, and we did uh, empathy interviews in, of um, several scholars, and ask them, would you prefer in-person or virtual learning? 100% said in-person mm-hmm. enthusiastically. Um, but they're also mm-hmm. coupled with that was this fear and instability of if, you know, there was a, a, a case of COVID or contact tracing um, at any moment, they could be, you know, sent to virtual learning, uh, one, for the continuous learning component of that, um, as well as for safety. So there, there was also that fear of instability for if there was a case in a classroom, quarantine, um, and, and continue virtual learning, they would just kind of miss, all, miss out on that, those needs that they had. Sure. Well, you yeah. know, I – If I, I could – Go ahead. Sorry. Sorry, sorry Dr. Perkins. I, I want to add on to that uh, point that Lakeisha just brought up. Um, I think about this every single day, the, the, great, the great renegotiation that is occurring um, in, you know, fields across our country and across our, our world, really. And um, as a leader of a school, I'm constantly thinking of, of ways that I can make this a career that is sustainable. And it's really hard in education <laughs> to do that. I think it would really uh, require a lot of other people in, in positions of power and authority to really rethink the mathematics of schooling or the grammar of schooling. How do we do this? And, you know, just thinking the long game here, I have more as a principal, the irony in this is I have more money than I have ever had before by a country mile. What I am wow. struggling with is the staffing. I need the people. And it's going to be, it's really hard right now um, after experiencing, of course, we in education, many of us did go fully remote. We experienced those luxuries of throwing in a load of laundry, walking down to the post office, et cetera. And, you know, the cadence of a day in a school is strikingly different from many other professions. Um, finding a minute to, to call your doctor to make an appointment, sometimes that minute is elusive. And when we're seeing, our teachers are seeing, and school leaders too, are seeing everyone, or, or not everyone, I shouldn't say everyone, but many around us, particularly in these um, white-collar professions, experiencing greater flexibility, and they're not, I, I, I about what that's going to mean for the state of education and, and our ability to recruit high-quality professionals who really, really want to do um, this job. Um, it's it's going to take, and to your, I think, a, pardon? Oh, no, I was saying to your, your point, Melissa, that when I think about one of the challenges of schools right now, Dr. Perkins, I think that you know, we missed an opportunity that COVID provided us. Like COVID daylighted inequities in schools, right? It daylighted okay. that the system, the system that we are operating within, um, is 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 antiquated, 
right? And that we have to be able to redefine what education is and what education could be. And even as we come out of COVID and as we respond, we're falling back into the same structures and those same structures have not kept pace with um, the, the, the other I think you would say careers around us, which is what you're speaking to Melissa and they're not as nimble. So not only are we not nimble with our staffing, but we're also not nimble with our instruction because as we've moved back into the classrooms, we've actually, at first we were like, on the computers and and still talking through the computers and now the computers have gone away and we've gone back to these older more traditional systems that haven't served students and 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 i fear that we will continue to fall further behind because we are accepting in this difficult reacclimation what is easy and what is easy is not what is best for students Great point. Well, you know, I, I keep hearing, and I, I mentioned earlier that I had so many people that came on during COVID. I had people come on that were mental health professionals, psychiatrists, sociologists, and um, uh, psychologists, and and the like. And and I had people, and I've said this before, they kept telling me during the last two years. Um, thank goodness our kids are resilient. And mm. I, I, I guess I want to hear from from you about the the level of truth in that resilience. Now, I I, I would be the first to say I think it's it it goes without saying that they're resilient. Just the fact that they are able to come and and do school um, in under such pressure. Um, especially in the early days when it was, you know, there was so much death around COVID and not knowing what was going to happen. You know, there was this mad rush to get back in schools. Now, but I, they, I couldn't get anyone to really acknowledge the impact long or short term that this was going to have on children. So aside from, them being, um, you know, them not being oriented to school. Are there any other difficulties, let's just say, that children are having that are going under-recognized? You know, just what are you seeing and or hearing that is happening in classrooms that maybe wasn't happening before COVID, um, at, at least at this scale. Is there anything or are, are there some things that we're missing? I wouldn't, and this is Lakeisha, um, I wouldn't necessarily say that this particular challenge was not present before COVID, but I think it has been exacerbated a little bit because of the virtual context. But we have mm-hmm. been... Uh, addressing a lot of social media interactions um, because I think that that ultimately became a key source of uh, communication for our scholars, specifically middle and high school. Um, And social media, unfortunately, does not just live (laughs) and and stay on those platforms. They come (laughs) into the school um, and students uh, tend to uh, bring some of those challenges or celebrations, I'll 
you know, paint both pictures um, to the school. And it becomes something that a lot of our uh, staff members have to address. Um, and, and for me, that is my, my biggest hope, that we get some prescriptive research to help us teach about and um, just like healthy use of social media, responsible use of social media, because it is definitely, um, it, it, it's, it is present in, in the schools. Yeah. Well, well, it's funny you say that because social media is one, but even the way we use technology. So, you know, I, I just yesterday I was in a school in New York City, and a principal was trying to convince me that, you know, one of the most important things for them to focus on was keeping kids from having their telephones in school, right? So um, they, they have their telephones, and, and so they had this lockdown procedure for, their, for telephones. And, and I, I challenged that a bit by saying, but if you think about it over the last two years, that telephones and the, the media, the social media and all of this has become a part of the way they live, you know, the way they, mm-hmm. you know, breathe and, and, and exist. So how are you going to eliminate that easily? And are you, in fact, um, trying to go back to a time that is gone, you know, where, I mean, this is, this is now a part of who they are. And and the and the fear of technology being integrated in that way um, that's that's somewhat informal um, is is frightening at least to this principle and I'm sure a lot of others. How how are you finding that also not just the the um, the, the telephone itself but the integration mm-hmm. of technology and social media? Thank you for bringing that up, Keisha. That I mean that's really a big part of who they are now in you know, these young people. So Dr. Perkins, exactly. go back to your, your last question about resilience, you know, that wondering about the resilience of students. I think one of the things that I've seen is because students have, we all, but students specifically have had such a challenging time over, over COVID um, that there is this, this attitude about, you know, creating environments within which students can survive opposed to thrive, and that there is a level of lower expectations that I see now than before COVID because students have had it so hard. So now for me to expect more of them and push them harder um, is is a disservice to them because they're reacclimating, right, and that we have to be sensitive to them. And so how do we counter that, the, the low expectation, um, you know, and I don't want to put them to a place where there's like self-harm, but I also think that mm-hmm. high expectations need to be reestablished um, mm-hmm. and, 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 and that surviving is no longer enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I um, it, it's interesting. I, I know you've you've long, um, Heather, been doing some of the work with technology. I when when COVID first happened, of course, now this is this is hindsight. 
Um, but I said, you know, not for health reasons, but actually to to get used to the idea that we are not going to be in schools for a while. I actually figured that we weren't going to go right back once we we came out. Um, and so what I what I put out there was that I thought um, we should just not go back in 2020. Uh, not be in such a rush to go back, but let's prepare ourselves for a longer haul of distance distance learning and remote learning. And so we went right back, and teachers didn't have all the equipment and strategies and uh, and know how to effectively do remote learning and we lost a lot of ground. Um, now, I don't know that it would have been the answer, but I think part of it could have been that we stayed out until September or August of that year of 2020, but in the meantime, we took a deep dive. So we knew that there were inequities, but we had, we, I think we could have taken a deep dive into, um, into getting teachers the training they needed. Um, or at least more of the training. Um, what are you? What are you finding um, that your teachers are saying about that? I think you're absolutely correct. Our organization focuses on project-based learning and STEM integration, and we pivoted pretty hard with our professional development in terms of using online tools for student engagement and um, provided significant amount of training for our teachers to be able to do that. And I think as a result, um, your comments about the phone, we actually taught them how to use students to use their telephones to engage, um, to respond to questions, to use it as a tool of learning opposed to just a tool of entertainment. And so I think when teachers started to utilize, uh, and we also in all of our schools immediately went to -to one-to-one laptops. We weren't in that capacity before. And so um, Mm -hmm. I think the ability to go to -to one-to-one immediately, to utilize the telephones in a regular way, um, and to provide targeted um, professional development to teachers around technology tools uh, really allowed our schools to um, get students engaged and move forward actually with our traditional curriculum and pedagogy in a way that didn't happen as quickly in the state. And so I think you're right, Dr. Perkins, um, if, if we had the opportunity um, to leverage those things again like we would, and we would encourage others to do the same thing and not be afraid of them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, Kevin and Melissa, what did you what did you encounter? Would you, you know you're you're running schools? Um, was it was it that your your teachers they had? Do you feel that they had the adequate training, or is it that they did you feel that they they struggled a bit because they needed more? Yeah, I think that. I think ironically, I think our teachers struggled a bit more in many ways than our students did. Um, and, and I feel really grateful that we've, you know, we've been one-to-one since I founded the school almost a decade ago. And one thing that we've, we really focused on with kids um, and teachers, you know, really worked hard in building these capacities in kids, teaching them explicitly how to learn. 
which sounds so simple, but I, I didn't really learn how to learn until I was in college. Um, I didn't take any courses on that, and really my teachers didn't embed that into the school day. And so we have focused for the last several years pre-COVID um, on building those executive functioning skills in kids and um, have taught really explicit lessons around this. So I think in many ways we were um, set up a little bit better. The pivot that was required um, for remote learning was steep for, for teachers. Um, that was certainly steep. And then, then the additional pivot that occurred afterwards for us anyway in Chicago um, was hybrid learning. So we had some kids in the building, some kids at home. And now that we've been back fully in person, um, yet another pivot, so this, this incessant change, um, is um, when, um, unfortunately, some of the kids have to go on quarantine because they're not vaccinated. So it, it's been really hard to keep up with um, as much time and energy and resources as we've tried to dedicate to professional development for teachers. It's been really hard to keep up with the constant, the pivots and the shifts. Um, and I, I will say teachers have commented frequently and parents on how impressed they are, particularly with our upper grades kids, because we've, we've been engaging in competency-based learning for the last several years. So they have a pretty sophisticated um, understanding, you know, of, of how to best navigate the technology and meet their their learning needs specifically. Mm -hmm. Dr. Perkins, I'll, I'll say it's it's such a complicated question, uh, which I really appreciate. Um, when I think about the like really early days of COVID, I would say, first of all, one of the biggest regrets that I had, you know, we also received an influx of federal funds. And one of the biggest regrets that I made is I rushed out and I bought these fancy camera systems that were supposed to be super easy to use and enable teachers to very easily teach in-person and virtual students all at the same time. And it, it fell flat. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. there's so many I constant, constant, constant barrages from uh, vendors who um, I had a vendor tell me yesterday, um, you know, we would be happy to accept your ESSER funds uh, for this program. I said, oh, would you? You'd be happy to. Oh, how generous of you. Um, and so, you know, there's a, lo there's a lot of that out there. Um, I'll also say when I think about the early days, we way underestimated the sheer volume of tech support that would be required. Um, you know, we oh, assume, wow. oh, kids are naturally good at technology. Um, well, you know, that has to be taught. <laughs> and we're over the phone trying to, you know, dictate a URL and, and you get a word, a letter wrong and, uh, and, and what's my password for this and what's my, you know. And so I think about all those things. I also think, you know, somebody shared earlier, um, I was talking to them a couple months ago, and they said, can you believe that we just told teachers just, like, figure out how to teach virtually, and then they did. Yeah. Like, can yeah. you believe that? 
Yeah. And I said, I yeah. absolutely can believe that because we asked them to, uh, you know, be attuned to the social emotional needs of our kids without giving them counseling training. We asked them to respond to a kid who's having a peanut allergy attack without giving them medical training. We asked them to respond yeah. to active shooters without police training. It's like we've, yeah. you know, we have, we have always in this country, like, more and more and more onto our teachers without giving them the training or expertise. So can I believe that we just ask teachers to figure it out? Absolutely, I can believe that. That's a long line of what we've been asked to do. The other thing that I'll just say is you know, our I have I have the greatest teachers on the history of the planet. Like I have really smart, dedicated, hardworking, and like deeply compassionate teachers. Um, but some of them don't have an intimate knowledge of the science of how kids learn at no fault of their mm-hmm. own. You know, they're going through yeah. whatever programs they're going through, and um, it, it's not always adequately preparing them. And they're so hungry for it. Like I can have a ten minute conversation with a teacher about assessment strategies or, you know, a quick pass through about a pedagogical practice or, um, you know, how to, how to structure this or that or whatever. And they eat it up and they like immediately apply it. And like, I don't have to like twist any arms or whatever. Like they're, they're, they're begging for these things. And so when I hear, are we adequately training them to like incorporate technology? It's like, to be really frank, I've got awesome teachers who need the basics of teaching. And like, that's the reality of the staffing situation. But, you know, I've got awesome folks, but, but, you know, before I can teach them really sophisticated technology software, like, you know, they're hungry for the basics of instruction, curriculum, pedagogy, and assessment. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, you know, to put it in context, um, Kevin, so uh, for those of you who don't know, I started my career in education in teacher education. And I remember very early on just kind of scratching my head to the idea that, you know, for three hours a week, for 15 weeks, one semester was all that we gave teachers in cognitive psychology, so to speak. But it is, you know, education psychology, that is how children learn at the teacher, kind of pre-service teacher training level. Now, you go back to school, you learn, you spend some more time when you get your master's, but preparing teachers, they don't really get a lot. And I think you hit it right on the head. Like before we even got here is that there there's some training that doesn't, happen and through no fault of their own but that just in terms of time and there's a lot that I could say about that because it has to fit neatly into a university four-year kind of program but we we won't get into that but um, I do want to go back to something that um, uh, Melissa you said about the hybrid learning and and it touches on what you said too Kevin and I, I will admit publicly that even more so than my first year as a university professor, the the last year going into 2020, um, 2020 was easier to me because it was we did a full online version of the courses. Um, I developed so much more respect for people that try to do the hybrid version because it was um, exponentially more difficult to manage people 
online and in person. And so it was one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult year of my uh, university teaching career. And what made it difficult is that um, my my recognition that um, so much that is learning, even for adults, can't be translated through the technology. We don't have mm-hmm. that yet, you know. And mm-hmm. and I, I would love to hear you uh, say a few words about that. Whoever uh, is interested in commenting, but is because. I remember in in one of my classes, um, I mean, it was just like just small things. And we, you know, and we were not intentionally trying to leave people out, you know, that were were online. Um, but there would be things that would happen. And maybe the the entire class would burst out in laughter, the, the people that were in in uh, in person. And then the people online would say, oh, what happened? And we would try our best to recreate it and say, oh, here's what happened, but it didn't translate. And and so, but the learning part of that that happens is all a part of an in-person experience. And so I, too, tried to come up with all kinds of technology gadgets that would allow me to stand and walk around my you know, living room area. I tried all kinds of things, but there's some things that just don't translate. Uh, is that what you also experienced with your teachers? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I've seen a few research reports and just surveys out to teachers, you know, remote, in person, hybrid by far, by far is reported by teachers and students to be the worst experience, the worst way the worst way to learn. So, Dr. Perkins, you're not alone in that by any means. Um, you know, mm-hmm. so much of learning is social, too. And like you said, mm-hmm. that's, that's missed. Um, I think things are slowed down exponentially. And unfortunately, something, you know, we, we had in some of our focus groups with teachers that came out was, you know, really striving, of course, to continue to provide relevant, rigorous, excuse me, rigorous curriculum but it was, it was really difficult to do in that space. Rigor was compromised. And, and mm-hmm. you know, I wish that weren't the case, um, but it was certainly in remote and, and in hybrid. Um, yeah, if you, can, if you can hybrid teach well, um, it, that's pretty remarkable. Um, I, hope, I hope that we don't have to continue to do that much longer at all. That's one of my greatest well, hopes for Oh, oh, for, for sure. And one, one, one important piece that I left out was that so when we, we learned on March 7th that we were going, you know, kind of uh, remote, um, my program, as all of you know, um, doesn't start until June. So we had a little time to prep. And so we started meeting and making plans for the oh, transition no. to a complete online. So we had we had all the way until June, but um, but the other part of it is that when when you start thinking about technology, just making the shift, um, one of the first things that I had to do when we when we did um, the hybrid version was to hire someone to be responsible only for the technology. So that is, yeah. we had an aide 
in the classroom mm-hmm. to help professors teach. Now, I know that was not the case in a lot of schools. So, I mean, you know, because it was right. a resource we had to put in place um, because right. it was difficult. And and so I can only imagine what what teachers uh, what teachers felt having to do it all by themselves. Right. And somebody compared hybrid teaching. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say somebody compared hybrid teaching to driving a car on the highway while simultaneously playing a race car video game on a screen. And like, you just cannot (laughs) do both of those (laughs) and do them well. It's totally absurd. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. No worries. No worries. Just to bring um, an earlier point that Heather made in terms of like surviving and thriving, Hybrid learning, to me, is like a survival mechanism. Like, it is in Mm. place to honor the, you know, to be able to have uh, team members or students who are immunocompromised and things like that to have access. It really is like a survival mechanism, not the the ideal thriving mechanism. And we've also used it um, for um, some of our staff uh, meetings and things of that sort for convenience as well. So I would agree, like, hybrid <laughs> is not the ideal state. But to your point, Dr. Perkins, like, we had to make it work because we just needed to give access to our students uh-huh. and some of our team members um, who just needed that additional safety measure. Um, so that uh, – and being able to put in intentional support. So, like, we do hybrid at our high school for that specific case to honor – the um, uh, safety of some of our students who needed that additional time um, virtually. And we had to be really intentional about ensuring that we were observing for the teacher's actions, um, both uh, positive, uh, positively impacting that uh, virtual scholars experience and what was potentially negatively impacting it. And it had, uh, you know, both uh, uh, it, it, impact, it had an impact in both directions, positive and negative. Like it almost kept that teacher at their seat, at their desk, because they had to like monitor the screen. Mm-hmm. So they weren't able to be proximate and, and, and transition around the classroom. So it, it definitely, um, I would say, was one of those survival mechanisms for us. Yeah. 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 Right. I thought it was, uh, was that Heather, were you about to say something or? No, 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 I was just listening. Yeah. Um, And so it is, it is amazing that we, so here we are, um, you know, two years later uh, that um, since the start and, you know, moving forward, um, you know, what, what next, what do you see? um, So all of you, you know, in your own right, you, you are, you're, running organizations and some doing, you know, multiple locations. Um, but what's, what's next for how we catch up or do we catch up? Um, what, what's the, I guess, the biggest challenge for getting back? You know, one, one thing that I said earlier I posted um, that we're going to talk about is, you know, going back, people are saying that we, it's taking us longer to get back to normal. Is that the goal, though? Are we trying 
Are we trying to go, is our next step to go back to what we were doing before COVID? Or is there anyone out there thinking about there's a new reality um, for this? I, I actually am in the camp of we need to prepare for a new a new system, um, but I know how difficult that is. But I'd love to hear from you. What's next? What's next? Well, I, w- I would say, Dr. Perkins, you're absolutely correct. I'm on the side with you of, like, we need a new system, and I think part of that goes with our accountability system with testing. And so I am, you know, looking to have conversations around how do we upend the system that we've tied to, you know, tests and test scores. Um, in order to look at more holistic ways to evaluate the the strengths and growth of our students that honor their effort and their development. So, um, and and that can't happen in the current structure within which we we operate, right? And Mm -hmm. so um, so I'm hoping that that changes personally. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Kevin, what about you? What's next? Well, we've got lots planned. We've uh, we've got a big dinner at our local civil rights museum planned to to sort of re-spark the parent-school connections. I mentioned previously that that's long been sort of what our school has been known for, um, but it's it's been uh, it's been more strained than normal, and so. We, we're taking some steps to hopefully re-engage family school connections. Um, we are revamping our, our count, school counselor position. Um, that person will exclusively focus on counseling. So we are literally taking every other responsibility away from our counselor to ensure that our counselor will be able to spend 20, you know, the entire work week um, being able to provide individual and small group counseling to, to hopefully address um, student social emotional support. Um, and then we are creating a, a lead teacher model. So we will have a lead math teacher, a lead English teacher, a lead science teacher, and a lead social studies and special teacher. Um, and these these leaders will not uh, have teaching responsibilities that, that is common for many lead teachers, but instead they will have two charges. They will first be responsible for making sure that, that students are meeting academic outcomes um, because we do believe that that's important. Uh, and then two, they will be supporting the, the teachers and making sure that teachers feel like this is the best place to, to do their work. Um, and even if we can't always make it easy, they should know that they have partners, that they have a champion, that they are somebody that they can um, lean on um, and that's available to, to help and assist them. So we've got a variety of things planned to hopefully take a holistic approach to, to look at everything from, um, you know, safety and health and well-being to parent engagement to um, and mental and emotional support to academic outcomes and, uh, and, and uh, supporting teachers. It's, it's all kind of got to be interconnected. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Keisha, what about you? You you have several schools under you. What's next for you guys? Well, Dr. Perkins, I am just super proud to work alongside such amazing, devoted leaders um, and, 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 and team members, several of them who are uh, on listening now. So shout out to my Kip Metro Atlanta crew. <laughs> but um, <laughs> we are taking our lessons learned we are seeking input, gathering our stakeholder voice, listening um, to our families, to our scholars, to our team members, 
so that we can truly design at the margins with our stakeholder voice at the forefront. Um, and that just makes me so proud. That makes me honored to work for an organization that prioritizes that. And it is making us better. We are truly becoming a community organization and community schools. And um, just having this, the, seeking the input, having that additional insight, we are being responsive to the um, immediate needs of um, those that we serve. So I am just super grateful for the opportunity, learning a lot, and excited about the strategy and actions that we're putting into place. Awesome. Thank you. And, Melissa, you know, you're in Chicago, and we hear a lot about the education system (laughs) and education landscape. Often you cannot escape the the national news media <laughs> in What about Don't you? I know it. Don't I know it? You know, I, I think it's no secret that the American educational system is uh, remarkably resistant to change. And I personally like to change things. And yeah. I really would love to see us capitalize on some of the things, you know, we didn't know we could do, we did. Um, I would love to, to see some real innovation take place in, in the educational system. And back to what we were talking about before, um, rethinking school and the mathematics of school and what a school day looks like. And I would love for us to be able to get creative with scheduling so that our teachers, this can become a field that, um, you know, high-quality people really want to flock to and work in. I, I, I think we can get flexible. I think we can have a flex day, you know, one day a week for teachers um, with the staff that we have if we can kind of bust up the schedule in ways that we haven't done before. Um, and, that, you know, that would still have kids showing up five days a week. I think we can do that. Um, so I would, I would love to see us capitalize on that and really be innovative. And, and something else, um, you know, I think schools we know across the country have been putting a lot of focus on social-emotional learning uh, for our kids and our families and our, and our teachers, too, for the last several years. But I feel as though this, this forced us to do even more and really focus on the, the well-being of our kids. Um, so I, I would like to continue to um, see that shift occur across, you know, all schools. I think we're seeing more of it just in society at large. And so mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to having more focus groups with kids um, and hearing, you know, they're the experts on what they need in so many ways, and kids and parents. And so I think Kevin was mentioning that just really getting on the ground with um, those who have been disrupted the most and, and hearing from them what, what do they need that, that doesn't necessarily involve, you know, the academic piece. So a greater focus yeah. on just overall well-being for, for everyone in the schools. Yes, thank you. And, and a lot of people are focusing in on well-being and just, you know, uh, contentment and, and just uh, mm-hmm. health and thinking about mental health in a very different way than we have in the past. And I think that's, yeah. a, that's a very positive that has come out of this. And, you know, to the people who are out there that might be thinking like principal, 
that I talked to yesterday is that I do believe we have to adjust and and fight against all the things that we learned and the way we will socialize in education. So um, it's going to be tough, but I do think we can do it. Um, so thank you all. Uh, we run out of time, but I thank you all for being on the show and and all the work that you do. Um, and so please all um, our regards to your, your staff and just let them know that we're, we're pulling for them and uh, all the families and children that they serve. And so I'll see you guys, I'm sure, uh, into the future. Uh, go well, stay well, everyone. Take care. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. Thank, Thank you so much, Dr. Parkin. Bye, Bye-bye. Bye-bye.